You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is entitled Alabaster. Hello my radio friends. I'm so glad you've joined me today for another in the series Give Me the Bible. It's nice to know you've been enjoying the programs and thank you for your feedback. Before getting into the more important issues of today's program, do you know anything about alabaster? With modern materials like plastic, alabaster has gone out of fashion. But at one time it was used widely in carving and for making small bottles and jars and sometimes even small windows. Alabaster is a crystalline substance. The softer variety is from gypsum and is about as soft as chalk. The harder variety is known as calcite, although it is soft enough to be carved. Stalactites and stalagmites are very similar to alabaster, being almost opaque and of a whitish colour. Alabaster features in the Bible and I'd like to share the story around it. This story is true, it's not a parable. What happened occurred just before Jesus was crucified. Jesus had just announced to his disciples that in a few days' time he would be betrayed and crucified. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, Meanwhile, Caiaphas, the high priest, had called some of the priests, scribes and elders to his palace. He asked them to help him decide how to get rid of Jesus without causing a disturbance. Those who were true Pharisees said, Whatever we do, let's not do it on a religious holiday, especially on the Passover, or we'll have a riot on our hands. What a bunch of phony fakes they were. Jesus had committed no crime. He'd only done good to people. But he saw through their sham of pretending to be holy when they weren't. He knew that they were motivated by tradition and a desire to be regarded as important and well thought of. Several times previously, Jesus had challenged them to live according to what they taught. And Jesus was so right. Their traditions and carrying out of empty ceremonies were more important to them than the keeping of God's holy law which they imagined they were upholding. Yet they were prepared to break the law and murder an innocent man because he had challenged them about their religious practices. Well, the alabaster story happened at Bethany, about eight kilometres from Jerusalem. Under the threat of being arrested and crucified, Jesus did not go into hiding. Instead, he went to a feast given in his honour. Simon, a Pharisee, was probably an influential 
and wealthy man, but he had leprosy. Jesus healed him of the leprosy, and consequently he wanted to do something for Jesus to express his gratitude. So he arranged a feast, a dinner party at his house. Jesus came, and his disciples came with him. And as far as I understand the culture of the day, the guests did not always sit on chairs around a table. Sometimes the guests reclined on large cushions and couches scattered around the room. And I expect this was a very pleasant and happy occasion. And I'm fairly certain Simon felt extremely satisfied that he was able to repay something for the beautiful thing Jesus had done for him. You see, Simon had become an outcast because of his leprosy. But now, as a healed man, he could live in his own home with his family again. He could freely mix with other people, not having to cry out, unclean, unclean, all the time. Because of his healing, he had been reinstated as a normal member of society, and he was so very, very grateful for what had been done for him. The meal was in full swing, but little did they know that someone else was about to show gratitude for what Jesus had done. Uninvited, a woman came into the room where the dinner was being conducted. Aghast, those in the room who saw her enter shrunk back in astonishment. This was a woman of the night. She was a known prostitute. Of course, only those who had received her services would have recognised who she was, as prostitution is generally a very secretive profession. This woman was prepared to gate-crash the party, for she had something very important on her mind. You see, prostitution is a form of adultery, and adultery is sin. God's law the Ten Commandments points that out clearly. In the Jewish law-abiding society, this woman was considered a sinner. She would have had similar status to that of a tax collector. Tax collectors were considered the lowest of the low. The woman came into the room. She must have been very nervous but she was determined to carry out the mission she had in mind. Clasped tightly in her hands was an alabaster, alabaster flask, a kind of wide-necked bottle. She had bought it for this special occasion. No doubt the flask itself was exquisitely carved, because inside was a very expensive fragrant oil. It was spikenard, which is distilled from the roots and stems of the valerian plants which only grow in the sub-alpine regions 
of the Himalayan mountains, especially in Nepal. And I've seen a documentary of families in Nepal collecting these valerian plants. The cottage industry has grown in response to the demand for the spikenard oil. Access and transport is much better nowadays than back then. But even so, spikenard is a very expensive commodity. The kind of person who would normally purchase this kind of thing would be quite rich, and it would be given to someone who was very precious to them. It would be a gift that would last a lifetime. The oil would have been used one dab at a time. Estimates of the value of this little flask and its contents are that it would have cost about a year's wages. In today's values, it may have been worth $30,000 or more, or perhaps equal to the cost of a new car. So how could this single woman have so much money to buy that alabaster flask of fragrant oil? Obviously, her former profession earned her a lot of money. So she enters the room uninvited. Next, she walks over to Jesus. Then, removing the stopper from the flask, she tips the oil, not just in drips, but pours it over his head. All the while, she is shedding tears of joy, relief, and gratitude. Who was this woman? According to the Gospel of John, chapter 12 and verses 2 and 3, it was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And I'll read it to you. This is what it says. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And going on in John chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped her feet with his with, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was sick. Now you don't need to be a lawyer to put those two texts together to see that Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, was the one the Bible is talking about. The gospel writers vary a little on the details of this story. It, it appears that Simon knew Mary, Martha and Lazarus. Simon was the Pharisee, of course, who gave the party. Martha, being a good cook, probably prepared much of the food and helped serve it at the party. Then someone complained about the actions of that woman. It was Judas Iscariot, most probably the son of Simon, 
who was throwing the party. He was the same Judas who betrayed Jesus later on. He murmured, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? Verse 7, Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. This unofficial anointing was symbolic of the anointing that happened when a prophet was told by God to anoint a new king. The new person was set aside for a holy purpose. Jesus' death and burial was for a holy purpose, namely for the salvation of repentant sinners. And Jesus added in Matthew 26 verse 13, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So why would this woman, Mary, become so famous around the world because of what she did that day? In a certain way, she reflects the nature of God. She was extravagant. She went way past the normal. She gave of her very best to honour Jesus. But why? Well, Mary had been a very wicked woman, but Jesus forgave her. Obviously, she turned from her wicked ways and now, instead of living in the shadows, afraid to come out in public because she knew she would be condemned and having to continually live with a guilty conscience, she was now free, free from condemnation and free from guilt. There are various references to this story in all of the Synoptic Gospels. Luke explains a little more. In Luke 7.38 he said, She stood at his feet, behind him, weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. This was a demonstration of extreme gratitude for forgiveness. She had been forgiven much, and so her gratitude was great. In Luke 7.47, Jesus explained, He said, Therefore, I say unto you that her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves just a little. We're going to stop here and have a little break and go on straight afterwards. Jesus, Jesus, oh Jesus. 
Cause there's just something about that name Master, Savior, my Jesus Like a fragrance after the rain of his name can calm the storm, heal the broken, raise the dead. At the name of Jesus I've seen sin-hardened men melted, derelicts transformed. I've seen the lights of hope put back in the eyes of a hopeless child. I've heard a mother softly breathe his name at the bedside of a child delirious with fever. And I've watched that little body grow quiet, the fever brow cool. I've sat by a dying friend, her body racked with pain, who in those last, final fleeting seconds summoned her last ounce of strength to whisper Earth's sweetest name, Jesus. Emperors have tried to destroy it. Philosophies have tried to stamp it out. Tyrants have tried to wash it from the face of the earth with the very blood of those who claimed it. Yet, the name of Jesus stands. And there shall be in that final day, when every voice that has ever uttered a sound, every voice of Adam's race, shall join in one great mighty chorus to proclaim the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you see, it was not mere chance that caused the angel one night long ago to say to the virgin maiden, His name shall be called Jesus. Jesus. You know, there is something about that name. This woman would be remembered through the ages because she was so grateful for having been forgiven great sins. A oh, big deal, some might say. Well, here's the situation. Someone cuts a finger and you help them by putting on a band-aid over the cut. Is that person grateful for your help? 
Yeah, probably a bit. Someone else might be involved in a car accident and is trapped inside the car, which is about to catch fire. You manage to pull them out to safety before the car bursts into flames. Are they grateful? Oh, you bet. The gratitude expressed will be proportional to what was done for them. And so it was with Mary. Now here in this moving story we see two individuals who express their gratitude to Jesus, although there was someone else who showed a resentment. We also see who Jesus was. You see, Simon the once leprous Pharisee showed his gratitude for physical healing by preparing a feast for his honoured guest, Jesus. Mary, at enormous expense, showed much greater gratitude for moral and emotional healing because Jesus forgave her for her past sinful life. But Judas wasn't grateful at all. All he was interested in was what he regarded as a waste of money. My friends, it's a wonderful thing to have your sins forgiven. It's wonderful to face up to the fact that you've done wrong and then acknowledge that to others. But even more wonderful is when whoever you have wronged forgives you. A huge weight is lifted off your shoulders. I've experienced that, and I know the feeling of relief and joy that comes when you realise that you are forgiven and are no longer accountable for those sins. To experience forgiveness, firstly, it is necessary to face reality, to recognise that we have sinned. The second step in forgiveness is to admit that you've done wrong. And the third step involves humbly requesting pardon. And if that happens, you become free, free of the guilt, free of the responsibility of owning that sin and free to look others straight in the eye, knowing that you have nothing to hide. There is a big issue that this story highlights. It's about who can forgive sins. On a human-to-human -human level, if I sin against you, for example, if I took something that belonged to you, I would have stolen your property, and that's sin. When my conscience troubles me so much that I feel that I have to return your item and make things right with you, you could choose to forgive me. But sometimes we do things in secret, or because of circumstances it may not be possible to ask for or obtain forgiveness. Yet that sin, or those sins, still sits heavily on your conscience. How do you get forgiveness? The answer is you must go to God. Now I realise that there's one major church that has put a system in place where they maintain that you can obtain forgiveness by confessing to a priest and or by paying money or giving gifts to the church. No way. The Bible does not support nor does it condone such a practice. Only God can forgive you. No priest can do that. 
A priest may encourage you to ask for forgiveness, but that forgiveness must come from God through Jesus Christ, who died for that very purpose. Without his redemptive sacrifice, forgiveness is not possible. In Luke 7, verses 48 and 49, Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus was indeed God, God the Son, who came down from heaven to earth to save lost human beings. Now, how can I express my gratitude to God for what he has done for me? How can you express your gratitude for what God has done for you? How can you pay him? Can you give him gifts? Can you do good to others and hope the good balances out the bad in your life? Can you put on a dinner party for God? Can you pour precious oil over his head? Well, no. Some of those things are just not possible. Can you thank him over and over? Yes, of course we must thank him, but words are cheap. Action is required. Both Simon and Mary did more to express their gratitude, and we must do more as well. The answer to that question is found in John fourteen fifteen, where Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. That's it. We properly show our gratitude to God for his forgiveness by honouring him, that is, by doing what he wants. My friends, it's easy to accept God's forgiveness, but it requires more. We must commit ourselves to live in accordance with his will, for that's what he wants. I hope you will show your gratitude by living how God wants you to live. He or she who is forgiven little loves little. He or she who has been forgiven much loves much. Well, we've reached the end for today. May God bless you, my friends, as you give consideration to today's topic. And it is my hope that you will show your gratitude by obeying, honouring and serving our beautiful God who loves you more than you will ever know. Well, I've been to the river, I've been baptised, I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I've been changed from the creature that once I was, and redeemed is now my name. I've been changed, I've been newborn, 